tell me about the cover of this book. Well, um, when the She Writes Press does great covers, so they asked me, what are you thinking? And I said, well, if I, you could find a stock picture of a young woman looking out to sea and from behind, and then they had the idea of putting the little, the ship in the distance because she's going to leave, you know, she's going to leave Ireland. And I saw they sent five or six pictures and my brother's a professional photographer. So I said, Matt, this is the one I like. And I sent it to him and he said, yep, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But, uh, the designer is from She Writes. So our listeners um, tuning in, I am talking with Marion O'Shea Wernicke. And uh, welcome to the JCB Art Studios Season 5. For first-time listeners, my name is Joanna. I am the author of Dealer's Child and the Unraveling, and my head is just so far into Spy Girls right now. <laughs> Don't ask me uh, what my name is. That's how, writers, <laughs> that's how writers are. We're in that world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a little bit about Marion O'Shea Nikki. Okay. She is the author of a stellar and beautiful novel out of Ireland. Marion was born and raised in an Irish Catholic family in St. Louis, Missouri. She is the author of the novel Toward That Which is Beautiful, which was a finalist in both literary fiction and romance fiction in the 2021 Independent Book Awards. As well, it was a finalist in the Multicultural Fiction in the 2021 American Fiction Awards. Now, this is interesting. The 2021 Catholic Press Association, which I never knew existed, uh, <laughs> awarded the novel an honorable mention in fiction. Now, Marion, she was a nun for 11 years. She worked in Lima, Peru for three years. And after leaving the convent, Marion taught English as a second language in Madrid and later was a professor of English and creative writing at Pensacola State College for 25 years. Marion, I'm excited to talk to you, uh, but I, I've got to focus. I'm just looking at this beautiful cover on this beautiful book. So I am excited to talk to you about Out of Ireland. Yes, it's it's a work of love because it's based very loosely on the few facts I knew about my great-grandmother, whose name was Ellen, but I named her Eileen in the novel. And my mother, when as she got older, started talking about, this was her grandmother. It's my maternal great-grandmother, my mother's grandmother. And she was telling me stories. She lived, the grandmother lived with them when she was a widow. So until age 13, when my mother, when the grandmother died. So my mother was a young teenager. So she's, She's the Maggie in the prologue because she knew her grandmother when she was dying. So she started talking about this, but only in her old age, my mother. And I wish I had talked to my grandmother, who was her daughter, more. But that's the origin of the story. Okay. Now, each book, each book is a different writing experience. Um, your novel, Toward That Which is Beautiful was published in September 2020, and it's a story of a runaway nun who's been working in the high plain of Peru in the early 60s. 
Now, why would she leave one day without telling anyone where she is going? Okay, that's a question for listeners. Now, out of Ireland, as as you had been mentioning, is based on your great-grandmother's life. So between the two books, is there one book that is more personal to you? Um, And why, or are they both equal for different reasons? That's such a good question, and you're making me think hard. (laughs) Well, let me tell you that toward that which is beautiful, because it's about a young nun, and I was a nun. Now, I didn't work up in that area. I worked in Lima. And up in the Altiplano, it's very different. But I could use all my background as a nun, especially the part in the novel about when she enters at, at a young age and what it's like to be a novice and how you miss your family and 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 the whole thing. And then I also worked in Latin America. So that's a very personal part to me. And in fact, in the novel, I have a taxi driver ask the young sister, why are you here? Aren't there problems in your own country? And that's something a taxi driver asked me in Lima. And this was 1968 when Robert Kennedy had just been assassinated. We had riots. We had, you know, civil rights was a big issue, the Vietnam War. So it was what haunted me. And I made that be the thing that haunts her. Is she doing the right thing to be in this country? And of course, she she's doubting herself. And then she falls in love with an Irish priest she's working with. So that that's why she leaves one day, because she can't figure out what to do. <laughs> now, the other novel is is in a way personal because it's a young woman who's who risks all to leave her country. They they make the decision, she and her husband, whom she's married unwillingly, to leave Ireland. And I thought, what bravery that took for some 19-year-old girl who's married to somebody she doesn't love, has a baby, to leave everything. And then her brother does too. So in, in that sense, it's personal to me because I dared to do things sort of like that, to leave my country and go to so they're both, I guess the first one is more has more autobiography in it than the second one. Okay, okay. Well, I know my mom and dad, so my mom left Budapest just after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So young, like you said, 19. Um, I think my mom was around 21, 22, just wanting a better life. Yeah. Sure. And, Right? Okay. Now I call this my my Barbara Walters question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Barbara. <laughs> okay. So I'll I'll offer up something of myself first. Okay. Okay. So and this is oh gosh. I, I just I hear what you have said so far and my little questions and insights seem so small. Okay. So I've been retired for one and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I've been working hard writing. Uh, writing mm-hmm. has become my first priority. Okay. Uh, and I've been debating about applying for a job at a bakery. Uh, oh. Okay. I would be working 16 hours. And I think it's what I'm, I explained it to my sisters as right now, I feel like every day 
is just one big lump of mashed potatoes mixed with mashed potatoes mixed with mashed potatoes. Like I, I don't have any, maybe I'm just mm-hmm. so used to 34 years of regiment working in the government. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, so I just, I got to say, I did apply for, I did apply and I am working 18 hours at the bakery. So, and, oh, and that's, okay. that, that's been a really cool it's day mm-hmm. three today, a cool experience. It's just in the afternoons when I find I don't, my writing, I don't, I'm not as creative in the afternoons as I am first thing in the morning right. or, or in the evening. Okay. Okay. So my small little, my small little change. So for you, you left the convent after 11 years and I was wondering how much of these characters' journeys are a reflection of your own journey. And I'm just thinking about what you must have gone through to make that decision. Like that's a brave decision. It was a difficult decision. I I compare it sometimes to getting a divorce in a sense, because I had made vows, you know, I had made promises to live this way my whole life. Of course, I entered at age 16, Joanna. So much to my mother's uh, disapproval. My dad was the one who said, oh, let her go, because he was Irish, and okay, it's an honor to have a nun in the family. (laughs) But I was determined. And then you grow up, you know, and I lived and grew, and and I I wasn't unhappy in the convent, but I started to really long for love and human love, not just loving everybody. In the convent, you're supposed to love everybody, you know, and not have any particular friends. And and, um, so I found myself drawn. Of course, I was teaching. I was teaching little children and, you know, they were adorable. And I'm sure the motherly instincts as I got into my 20s took over. So while I was in Peru uh, is when I really came to, um, I was very attracted to somebody there and I felt this and I thought, you know what, I think that's what I'm supposed to do, not whether or not it's this person, but but I think that's the way God made me and it can't be wrong to to live according to what I see about myself. And I, I went to confession to a priest once and I said, I was having these attractions and I, and he said, well, do you feel free to leave? And I said, no, I don't. I feel like I made a promise. Yeah. And he said, well, don't leave until you feel really free that you can do this. And that was very good advice. And I took that advice. So it took about three years to make that decision, but uh, it, it was the right decision. And four years later, I married somebody I met and had three children and I have a grandchild. So, that's so a, it, it was the right decision. But that's I a, don't regret that time either. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I, how the priest said it feel if you feel free to leave. Is that what he said? Yeah. In other words, don't leave with a lot of guilt or, or yeah. that you're doing something wrong. You know. Okay. Good. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that walking to, to the bakery today. That's wow. So, because I know where we have retired to now, my husband grew up in Shimanus and uh, it was a mill town until they shut the mill down. And then 
an individual had an amazing idea where he said, let's paint murals on the building. And then they came up with um, marketing as the little town that did. And now Shimanus has turned into this tourist attraction. Like even at the bakery, they're telling me, oh, just wait till the buses start arriving from the the, wow. <laughs> the cruise ships, Joanna. Okay. <laughs> so why I started this is because Ed, he he was an altar boy from let's say five years old to mm-hmm. 16. He was mm-hmm. in charge of the youth group. And this wow. This little town, they were about ready. There was, they were about ready to collect their money and send him off so he could become a priest if that was his choice, right? Mm-hmm. And he had, he had said to me, he goes, uh, "Yeah, uh, yeah, this, this is, yeah, this is how he met. Yeah, this, he told me the story the first day we met." <laughs> Right. So how do you know he sure got me thinking? Oh, this must be a good guy. (laughs) Anyways, so um right, right. You know he'd be a good guy, right? So uh he had said that he knew he wanted uh personal, more one-on-one relationships, right? So uh wow, wow, okay. So can you tell us more about, uh, now that I've been poking into your own personal life, tell us more about uh, Out of Ireland. Yeah. Well, this is a story of, it takes place in the late 1860s. So it's a family who've lost their father. Their father died um, of a heart attack, evidently, while he was out digging. Um, and, of course, he lived through the famine. But the, this is about 20 years after the famine. So these people... The kids, uh, this family, the children of the family did not live through that time, but it's very recent for them. And by the way, this wasn't a famine. In Irish, it's called the Great Hunger because there was plenty of food in Ireland. There was wheat, there were cattle, but the British owned those big estates and they shipped that food to England and they had military guards so that the hungry people wouldn't attack them because the Irish people lived basically off the potato. That was their main meal. And when the famine, after three, two or three years of no, they couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't, they didn't have enough. And they starved, million, million people starved and a million people left out of a small island. So anyway, this story is this family and the mother tells the daughter who's only 16, just 16, that they need her to be married because they don't have much money and the crops are failing and there's a widower nearby and she is horrified. She likes to read. She's working as a maid in the big house and she goes to her brother. Her brother, she has two brothers, but she's closer to Michael, who is also one of the main characters. Um, So they are friends. But then Michael is involved in very secret, illegal organization called the Irish Republican Brotherhood. But both of them are going to make the decision to leave Ireland. So that's basically, so there's the Irish part, the voyage over, and then the part in the United States. So it's an immigrant story. But it's also a story of a culture and a, the people of Ireland. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really good. <laughs> it was really good. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Now, what I first 
a couple of things. I know when I was reading it, I thought I would never survive these times. <laughs> I would I never. I, I feel the same way. I feel such admiration for my great grandmother and for all immigrants. Yeah. Today yeah. too. Look at yeah. all the people at our borders today. They're fleeing the same things: poverty, crime, yeah. etc. Yeah, and and to leave your home. Yeah. Oh, you know your people. To me, that's such a sign of that you have nothing left. Like this place has nothing mm. left for you, right? Mm. Yeah. So I know I was struck also by the classes of people during mm. the 1860s. And it you do it so well. You don't tell it. And you do what we you know is preached to all writers. You show it. And it's that little scene when little Eileen is playing on the swings with Lady Caroline, the Earl's daughter. And it's the adults who wreck everything, you know, because they they stop them from playing, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. They're they are the gentry. They are Anglo-Irish, usually not Catholic. They belong to the Church of Ireland, which is like the Episcopal or Church of England. And they are the landowners, which they took, they were given by the British crown, you know, unjustly taking away the Irish people's own. There was a civilization in Ireland before the British came in the 1500s, but all that was was forbidden. They couldn't speak their own language. They couldn't speak Gaelic. They had to learn English. Uh, the West pretty much uh, saved Gaelic um, anyway. So there was this huge distinction. They also, if they were Catholic, could not vote. They could not attend university. No way. They could not own land in their own name. Uh, some some were able to get an education, but um, all of that was, and, and you had to pay a poll tax to the Church of England if you didn't attend. <laughs> so um, they were in their own country, but they were colonized. Yeah. Kind of as we were well, under British rule, you know. Yeah. But this is eight, the eighteen late eighteen sixties, and they're still that way. Jeez. And that's why the Irish Republican Brotherhood formed is they were they were trying to negotiate with Ireland politically, but it wasn't working. So they said, "We're going to fight. We're going to have a terrorist revolution to right. boot them out of here, right? By, by any means." Because I th you. I'm trying to remember now. You do mention that where I think it's with Michael. You know, he's saying how, you know, we're trying to do this politely. We're trying to do this. By diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. But no one's listening. No, the British didn't keep their promises. That's right. Okay. So just so our listeners know, it was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which would be different from the IRA. Just because. Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, yes, this is an earlier um, institution. This was founded in 1858. Okay. And it ended it, after the Irish uh, uprising, the revolution and the civil war that happened in 1919 through 1921. So by 1921, uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood was pretty much over. Okay. The IRA happened later, and that was in the troubles in Northern Ireland in okay. the 60s and 70s that we remember. And but they were both, and in in the 
IRA, they're trying to get Northern Ireland connected back, unified back with Southern Ireland and get the British out of Northern Ireland because it's still, it's still those six counties after the treaty. This is all very historical. In 1921, they were kept by Britain. So they are part of the UK. Okay. The six, and, and so the island is divided and the IRA, the Catholics living there were second-class citizens. They were like the blacks in our cities. Yeah. They didn't have the rights. They didn't have the jobs. They didn't have the education. They were poor. And so they are trying to get work at the, in the 60s and 70s. So they both did resort to violence, both of them, because they didn't see any other way. Yeah. The IRB was attacking British garrisons in Ireland, where the British army was. Okay. At trying to at, later on in 1920, they even burned down some of those big houses. 230 of those beautiful big estates were burned. Wow. But that I, didn't happen at the time of the novel. Yeah. And I just I thank you for explaining that because I had no idea. And mm-hmm. what I'm wanting in our times when depending on and I'm not trying to make this like I just I find in our times sometimes there is a lack of real historical factual mm-hmm. information so I would like that's why I I wanted to ask that question because I thought I want to know the real factual information of what's the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of my favorite scenes in Out of Ireland with young Eileen, oh my God, is when she goes to church on Sunday with her family. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because uh, before I would love to read this paragraph. And it's interesting because I remember once my sisters had told me, so we had been raised Roman Catholic by our mother. And uh-huh. I remember my sisters telling me once that when my mom's sister died, they were very mm-hmm. close. My mother mm-hmm. was questioning her faith. And yeah, when you lose, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this scene, I, oh, I, I, this, this inner dialogue. So, our listeners know Eileen, she's 16, and she's going to be married to John Sullivan. And he's like in his early 40s. Yes, he's a widower. His wife has died and he lost a child too. So yeah. So I'm just going to read this. So Eileen and her family, her mom, they are in church. Okay. And Eileen has been asking the, the father, you know, Father Gleason for for guidance with regards to all of this that's happening to her. Eileen bowed her head in silence, hardly able to profess her faith in a God who was letting this happen. She glanced over at the statue of the Virgin, whose hands extended out from the blue cloak as if reaching for something. Mary's small, bare foot stepped delicately on the head of the serpent coiled into the marble so will you help sorry so will you be helping me or not she wondered 
At communion, she noticed that Michael did not approach the altar, and she peeked toward the back of the church to see him leaning against a pillar and then slipping out the door without taking holy water to bless himself. Ah, just that one line, are you going to help me or not? Like she's just at her wits end, right? Uh, Tell me about that. Very hard to believe in a God that would let this happen. And that's why she goes to the priest. Yeah. And he determines that he'll try to talk to her mother, but he gives this sermon where he talks about parents listening to their children and not forcing them. (laughs) And her mother gets furious at the priest and says, I'm not paying a bit of attention to him. He's not married. He doesn't know what, what we live. Yeah. So she's, that would test your faith that you're asking God to help you and doesn't feel like he is. And she's going to face more losses too. So it is amazing that one can still cling to that faith, even in the face of loss. Yeah. Well, as I said, uh, we were raised Catholic. And, but please don't ask me the last time I went to church. Okay. Okay. I won't put you on the spot. (laughs) Okay. Um, But I enjoy, I really enjoyed, I, I refer to it as the religious references. Like even that part where she's talking about Michael, how he turns around and leaves without, without blessing himself. Yeah. Well, he's involved in some bad stuff, you see. And so he doesn't feel, that he's welcome to receive communion, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's and, involved in this illegal stuff. And I just, I remember walking into St. Peter's Church, and before we went into the actual church part, to the right, there was the little dish where you put your fingers in, and you yeah. made the sign, and before you even walked in, right? Yeah. So... Another very touching scene is when Eileen's mother is dying and Father mm-hmm. Gleason shows up and you write how he kissed the purple stole and placed it around mm-hmm. his neck. Then the enamel cask, which contained the oil blessed on Holy Thursday. So I kind of have two questions, which are like woven into one here. First, mm-hmm. I felt the scenes involving Father Gleason added such another another layer, a total new new layer to this novel. And I was also wondering, could you authentically write this novel without including the Catholic religion in it? Well, certainly the last question, the answer is no, the short yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah. But I want to, I want, I'm so happy you picked on Father Gleason because he emerged as I was writing. And, you know, I I had in mind an actor. There's an actor named Brendan Gleason, and he's a big, heavy set guy with kind of a tough guy face. He was in the Banshees of Inner Sharon, this new okay. movie. I wanted him to be a sympathetic character because so often in fiction and and in film, priests are either horrible pedophiles or they're strict and ugly, you know, to people. But there are a lot of good, kind, understanding priests. And I felt like Eileen needed a friend in the novel. She needed somebody outside her family that she could talk to. 
And so, you know, the point of view, you know, a writer has to think, well, whose whose thoughts am I getting into? So we have Eileen, Michael, but then Father Hugh is the third person that I am entering and letting people know what he's thinking and doing. So it was a more ambitious novel than my first novel, where I only had the young nun's point of view, the young um, Kate, her name is. But this one, I have three people that I'm kind of juggling. And I wanted him to be a kind and understanding. And even he's he's sympathetic to the IRB. He, he can't publicly say it because the church didn't approve of it at that time. But he is. And so it was a lot of fun to write him. And um, I guess a lot of people have very negative experiences with priests. And I understand and I'm unsympathetic with many things in the Catholic Church. I'm still a Catholic. Yeah. But my faith doesn't depend on the goodness of everybody there. Um, and I I enjoyed writing that part. Absolutely. So, yeah, because with Father Gleason, you see he even his own like internal struggles with right. what's going on. Right. So he, he wasn't in, he came about through the writing process. Yes, I didn't plan on him. I didn't know anything about, and, and Michael did too. I know nothing about my great grandmother's brother. I know she had brothers, and I know one of them came to the states, but I know nothing about him. But I made up, and it was so much fun to make up his part because he gets involved in really dangerous stuff and makes bad decisions, and you know, yeah. <laughs> is very impetuous. So it's funny how characters just sort of pop in and and you don't know what's going to happen and in, in fact in Michael's case my sister one of my sisters read the manuscript before it was in print and he said I think he ought to die in the end and, <gasps> and so and I said well you know I have a problem but I I had to laugh because that's your choice as a yeah. writer you know and uh the characters kind of take over Joanna yeah. without you even meaning that to happen. And it's so. almost like a special, I'll say, gift or treat yeah, to the author when it's like you're dreaming this. You're dreaming yeah. it up as you go. Mm -hmm. And then and of course, this, you go back and revise, but still. <laughs> yeah. But when that that character just kind of like pops out and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> What's going on Where here? Come from, right? yeah. Yeah. Oh. So talk to me about you you've you've been mentioning about um how it wasn't it was more it was the great hunger. So yeah, talk to me about the setting and the research um where where this novel takes place. Yeah. Yes, there are, there are three settings I had to do research on. First of all, Bantry, Ireland. That's where we're pretty sure my great-grandmother came from. So my husband and I, five years ago, said, we're going to Bantry. I'm, I'm doing research on this novel. And it's a beautiful little town right on the Atlantic, right beneath Kerry in the west of Ireland. It's on a bay, but it leads out to the Atlantic. But there is a big house. It's called Bantry House. The Earls of Bantry were awarded in the 1600s. Where he was awarded an earldom for fighting, fighting to keep the Irish down when the British were taking over Ireland. So 
uh, and they had six guest rooms, so we could stay in the big house. So we booked a room for two nights. It was kind of pricey, but I said, well, it's all research. So, And I got to know that house. I saw the big, beautiful library where I have Eileen working, and it dawned on me, oh, this is where she could have worked. I don't know that. I, I have no idea what my grandmother did as a girl in Ireland. But I have that house there, and that allowed me to show the class system. So I had to do a lot of research into Bandy, but but we were there. We walked around. We we saw everything. We felt the weather there at the time. Then I had to research the voyage over. I, what was that like? And the important, an important plot point comes with this communal drinking cup. You were only allowed to bring a few things if you were in steerage. And of course, they would have been poor. So they were she and her husband when they decide to leave and with the child, they're down in steerage and there there's not a lot of water. And you were only allowed to, to drink to get a cup of water. And there was a communal drinking cup that everybody used. So disease spread. Those were called coffin ships, Joanna. Many people came over and they so many people died because they were it was unhygienic, you know. All right. Then I had to research where she would have, where they would have gone. They would have come to New York. They would have entered at Castle Garden. Um, uh, the that was where the immigrants entered at that time. Um, Ellis Island was until 1892, and that was something I hadn't known before I did the research. So I had to research that, and then where they would. I put them living in Holyoke because that's a town I knew because I had taught there in Massachusetts. Um, And then St. Louis, which is my hometown. But I had to research what what gangs there were. I never knew there were gangs in St. Louis. There were Irish gangs that were quite violent, and they were raising money for the cause in Ireland. Um, And there were other gangs, too. But my father, who was born in 1913, never talked about that. I never I never knew that, but there are lots of books about it. There's a book called Paddywhack, The Irish Criminals in St. Louis. <laughs> so that was, then I got Michael involved in that. So when you, you have these people in these settings, then you have to kind of research. And we, we even found the house that my great-grandmother lived in, my husband and I, in St. Louis. It's still there. It looks bad. It, it's got the windows all boarded up, but that that's where my grandmother was born. Oh, wow. When she marries again, but I don't want to give away too much of the story. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So the research took a couple of years, actually, yes. And all that was revealed, you know, like personally, too. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Now, I remember, like I said, I remember learning a little, not a lot, or maybe I've just, I can't remember, about the great, I'm going to refer to it as the great hunger. Okay. Yeah. And I was shocked when I did just a little, a little research before putting questions together. Like you said, million, a million people died from this famine and a million people fled. And what I, again, I want to make sure I've got the right facts here. So was it, you were saying it's because um, the British 
were holding back the food? Well, the first of all, the p- potato crop yeah. failed two okay. or three years in a row. Okay. And so that left the Irish without their main source of nourishment. Right. And the the main um way they were able to pay the rent, they would work as tenant farmers, you know. On their the own land food, though. Right. Like that's well, the thing. Really. It was but, on the British people. But it land, was but, in their own country. Yeah, that was their patch. That was their <laughs> patch. Right. And then when the crops failed, they couldn't pay their rent. They didn't have money. They didn't have money for food. And the British did nothing to help them. They they shipped off the the grain and the and the beef and all those things. And people said, well, why didn't they fish? Because our Ireland is an island, you know, and so there's coast. Well, when they were starving, they didn't have the energy to go fish to get into boats and and load. So. And then they would be thrown out of their houses and the houses would be burned down so they couldn't move back into them. The the police would burn down the houses that they evicted the people from. And so they were wandering the roads. The people in Ireland have never forgotten that and they have never forgiven that because it didn't need to. That didn't need to happen. There was plenty of food. Ireland was an agricultural country with sheep and cattle and everything. But especially this happened mostly in the West, in the West and South of Ireland. I just... And when your grandparents died that way or whatever, or your parents, you know, it's very hard. I think that was what really led to the violent revolution when they finally decided to rise up. People were very patient, but that was like the, the crowning blow, I think. How can you not, or how can you just turn a blind eye to that? That's, that's, that's what I'm just astounded. How could you do that? Oh, gosh. Okay. We see it today all over the world, too. I don't know that we've gotten, you know, so much. There are many, many charitable organizations who do help, but we know, you know, look what's happening in Ukraine and, and. And that's at our borders. We were putting little children in cages, you know, yeah. who were trying to get to the United States. So true. Very true. Mm-hmm. Very true. Okay. Okay. Now, our first of all, I learned a lot about my mother and father's travels from Hungary. They were on a boat going across the Atlantic. And I remember my mom said she got seasick, right? Just going across. So we learned a lot of stories, you know, over the dinner table. Um, Was that the same? That was the same for you too? Like how you? No, I wish, I wish we had talked more about it. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, it wasn't until my mother was in her early nineties and then I would go and stay with her for a week. She lived in St. Louis. I was living in Florida at the time. And had three kids and a job, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, and then she started talking about her grandmother. And I said, oh, and she said, yeah, she came from Ireland. And she brought out two letters that her mother, who was my great-grandmother's daughter, and her mother's sister, Alice. My grandmother was Nettie. And I knew my grandmother very well. I loved her very, very close to her. 
um, they had written to each other. They both lived in St. Louis, but one in East St. Louis. And in those days, this was the 1960s, people wrote letters. They didn't yeah. just pick up the phone and call each other. So they said, what do you remember about Mama? And they that's where they're talking in the letter. And they said, she lived, she, we think she lived in Bantry. She had black bread and fish. Uh, and they lived near the sea. And and she said she was forced to marry this older man whom she didn't love. And he was bossy and domineering. That's all in the letters. Yeah. And then uh, they had a child and they came to America. And then she they went on. I want I don't want to tell the whole story yeah. because that's what I'm but it it came out in those letters. So that and I wish, why didn't I talk to my grandmother before she died? She died yeah. in 1972. But I was away in Peru and, you know, I, I wasn't grown up enough to, to. And it's so important to ask your parents and grandparents those questions and talk about it like yours did. Yeah. Because I wish I had asked my grandmother. And one time I asked my mom, did did our grandma, did your grandmother have an Irish accent? And she said, I don't remember that. I, yeah. I bet she did because yeah. she was raised in Ireland. So. Yeah. But she was my mother's friend. My mother had six older brothers, and she said her grandmother was her refuge, and she would Aww. jump in bed with her on stormy nights if she was scared. And <laughs> so I had that that much from my mother, which I'm very grateful for. And before my mother died, she died when she was 99, but she had dementia. But I read her this first, the prologue, about Maggie going up to the dying grandmother and will say, Maggie is my mother. Yeah. She wept when I read her that. So I'm so glad she was still alive that and still aware enough that I could read her that. And she said, that's just how it was. <laughs> so, you know. That's amazing. That's another amazing story. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, you mentioned about whether she had an Irish accent. And it just, it, I'll never forget. And I've, I think I've mentioned this once on a podcast before where when I was a child, you know, like classmates would say to me or friends would say to me, oh, your mother has a Hungarian accent. And oh, I'd, yeah. I'd look at them like, what? That's just the way your mother spoke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I understand her. What's your problem? <laughs> like, uh, like I was just, like, uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know? yeah. yeah. So, are you ever concerned that future generations may forget about these times? Because I tell you, I remember once I had a conversation with a teenager, um, and I'm I'm just this one particular person. I'm not saying every teenager. I'm not I'm not painting a yeah, broad stroke, right? But this one one individual. Um, we were talking and uh, it was around Remembrance Day and she had made a comment about, well, I don't see what the big deal it is of always having to remember, of always having to know about what Remembrance Day is. And I, I just, I looked at, I first, I kind of, I think my mouth dropped open. And uh, then later, you know, it's it's like, we have this, so we don't forget what happened and what so many sacrificed okay and sometimes i'm concerned with you know you can pick and choose what news you want to to listen to right um 
that future generations may not know about these times. I mean, I'm going to put it at a real basic level here. I was shocked yesterday at the bakery when one woman who I work with held up her arm because she's got tattoos of the Muppets on her arms. And she says, yeah, Mm -hmm. the kids these days don't know who the Muppets are. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) So, seriously, are you concerned that future generations may forget our history? Absolutely. The, The first book I wrote before the two novels was a memoir about my father because he he had died and I got his records from World War II and I wrote a memoir and I went back and found out about his time in an orphanage, etc. I wanted my children to know this and their children, because now I have a grandson and another one on the way. They'll never have known my father, but he was, you know, a larger than life person. And each of my brothers and sisters contributed part to that memoir. They they wrote their memories of dad. And so we have this this book, and we have now in our family 16 grandchildren of my parents and 18 great-grandchildren and more coming. So all of them will be able to kind of read this, which is uh, my father's story, Tom O'Shea. And then this book is a tribute to our great-grandmother. And I have 26 first cousins who are waiting for this to come out because they said, and I said, I know, you know, it's fiction. I'm making up a lot of stuff. (laughs) So I'm a little nervous how they receive it, but they're looking forward to it too, because we all, our, our grandparents are dead and most of our parents are dead now too of the cousins. So those memories, the little kids, all these little kids coming up, when we have a family reunion, there are about 90 people there with all the wards and O'Shea's. So um, yes, I think it's so important that we know our past. And I, I used to, when I was teaching at junior college, I would tell my students, ask your parents and your grandparents to tell you their stories. They, they're people separate from you. They have stories yeah. and you need to know it. And yeah. It makes you understand them better. Well, also the facts that you've so expertly have woven into this book. I mean, even if, If an individual doesn't want to read a book about the history, but if you read the fiction, you're going to learn. And as I was reading, it then made me grab my phone and and I'm like, wow, did this really happen? And you Google and you're just like, whoa, this really happened, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's, I also think books are important (laughs) and even more. paper books, you know, I, I'm a huge hard, like, I, I like my paper, as you can tell, I've got all these post-its on your, in your book, right? Sure, sure. I that too. Because <laughs> it's so easy to lose something, I think, on a computer or an internet mm-hmm. site could be taken down or no longer exist, but a, a book, a book less. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So being an author, I always like looking at the acknowledgements and it's every author thanks their editor and uh i i thank my editor i think i should buy her a case of wine (laughs) you know Um, it's like 
this last book of Spy Girls, it's like, you know, she asks me these questions or she'll point out, you know, I think the latest one was um, your heroine enters the scene wearing hoodie and jeans and she leaves the scene and she's in her her nursing scrubs, you know, and it's just like, oh, geez, you know, so (laughs) all those things can happen. My (laughs) husband was great at editing me. You know, he would say, your timeline's out of whack here. You have him at this age and this, and Michael's an engineer and he, you know, was very careful. I know exactly what you're saying, Joy. Yeah. yeah. So through her questions, through her um, highlights and pointing things out, I feel that a, she's pulled out a better story. For, literally, a better story has emerged in me um, because of her work. So I was wondering, how has Out of Ireland changed from its original manuscript? Okay, good question. And let me amend something because I just looked at the acknowledgments. Mimi Bark is the designer of the cover. So I want to give credit to Mimi Bark of She Writes Press. (laughs) Um, Yes, about editing. First of all, I sent the manuscript to a friend of mine in Washington, D.C., who is an editor, and she has an assistant. And she's in in her 60s, the assistant's in her 20s. So I had both of them read it because I wanted a younger person as well as the more experienced editor to read it. And I paid them for this, and they sent back copious notes, the younger one, really copious notes on every single single chapter, what worked. you know, if if anything maybe didn't work, et cetera. So that was one revision after that. I went through it very carefully. I didn't take all the suggestions, but I took many of them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> then the editors that she writes press, too, had some, some stylistic things. And uh, luckily, no sensitivity issues. That's a big thing now, yeah. too. And I do have one Black character in the book. And I wanted to be very careful that I was being fair and respectful to the way a, a young black girl in St. Louis in the 1870s would have been perceived. Yeah. Um, then I was worried about the Irish part. And so we have an Irish council here in Austin okay. and I called up the secretary and she put me in, she said, well, Claire McCarthy is the council. I'll have her, I'll tell her what you're wanting. I wanted somebody to read it who is actually Irish. She yeah. got on the phone and she said, Oh, this is lovely. I'm from Cork myself. And and I'll tell you what, I'll put you in touch with three people that could edit, could read this for the cultural and historical accuracy. She found one person, and he his name is Oliver O'Hanlon. He's a PhD student at the University of Cork. And he read it for me and he helped me with some factual things. For example, I had the mother have a silk blouse on. He said, yeah. no, they would not have had silk. She would She would have never had a silk blouse, yeah. not an Irish, you know, farm woman. Yeah. Uh, and more things like that. A very important thing is I had them burning houses. And he said, no, that didn't happen till the 1920s. So this was yeah. out of, this was something I was very grateful for that because that was going to be a big plot point. Michael would not have wanted to burn the house where his family worked you know so anyway I had to get that all out and all references so 
it's very, very, very important to have good editors. And I was grateful to him for saving me from embarrassment. You know, that would have been embarrassing if people find a factual error in what you've written. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So Marion, wrapping it up. What's next? Yeah. Is there something or, or, like I, I know sometimes um, authors can't talk about if they're under contract with something specific, no. but what's what's next for you? Well, I'm thinking I'm, here's what I'm thinking. Not another novel. I'm thinking of a book of poetry. I, I wrote poetry when I was a busy mother and teacher and wife. You know, I didn't have time to write a novel, which you need long, longer time. So I'm thinking and. I don't want to write a memoir about my life, but I'm at an age where I'd like to look back. And I thought a series of photographs, I would have a photograph on one page and a poem on the other, going back to my earliest remembrances of my parents, about maybe 20 poems. I haven't written them yet, and I was going to go through old photographs, but that's my next idea for a project. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) That is excellent. Well, Marion, this has been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. And people get out of Ireland. When is the actual release date? It's next week, April 25th, but you can pre-order from your indie bookstore or Amazon, wherever you order your books. But uh, yes, next week, I'm I'm very relieved. And Joanna, you may have a book in you about your mother. I think her story coming from Hungary would be fascinating. So yeah. is she still alive that you no. could talk? No. no, she's not. And um, it's interesting because uh, I've had, I wrote actually no this, I'm, oh gosh, I'm admitting this. Um, I've wrote a poem about her, which mm-hmm. only one person, my critique partner has seen it. And, mm-hmm. you know, my critique partner gave me some suggestions for it. And she said, you, you have a, you have a good poem here. And I said, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, I wrote it just after she had passed. And yeah. uh, I said, it's a little too, I'm too maybe, uh, yeah, too, or mm-hmm. I'm, how do I, mm-hmm. it's too close. I can't let it go yet. Right. 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 For others to see. So I, I still have it, but uh, well, you can still work on it. You know, you can still read it now at a later date and see what you think. Yeah. Well, I'm her story would be very interesting. Um, right now, as I'm when I was waiting for edits from my editor, I started, I had this such a rough draft of a alternate history that I had been wanting to write for like the last three years. And so then I've started that and it's just so different from a thriller yeah. novel. I'm in that honeymoon stage, Marion, when I'm writing. <laughs> That's the fun stage. The hard part is the revising and editing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's been a pleasure, Joanna. I am so honored to have spoken to you and to your listeners in Canada or wherever. Yeah. And uh, thank you for your close reading of the book. I appreciate that. Well, it's a good book. (laughs) A good book. It's easy to read when you're reading a good book. (laughs) Right? So, okay, Marion. Well, have a good day. Okay.